Well, good morning. Good morning. If you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back. I suppose you can use a Bible on your phone. But you can use a real one too. It's my preferred method. Acts chapter 15, we are going to be in um, the Jerusalem Council, verses 1 through verse 35. There are these sorts of moments in history, right? These moments where time sort of stops, where a decision needs to be made, and by some providence, a leader rises to the occasion, they must make a decision, and history will either make them out to be a hero, or history will make them out to be a cautionary tale. Those moments in which it almost seems like time, or history itself is being weighed in the balance. You know those moments? Maybe you think of Abraham Lincoln and his Gettysburg Address. Or maybe you think of Winston Churchill, right? After 57 nights of bombing, and he rises to the occasion, and in the face of insurmountable odds, he says, we will not break. This past week, I was reminded of another story, a sort of forgotten story in history. And it's the story of George W. Bush, when he wasn't the president, he was actually the governor, and he was sitting with Condoleezza Rice in Texas, and he was having a conversation about if he were to be president someday, what sort of foreign policy he should undertake. And Condoleezza Rice said, we need to invest in Africa. But not just generally, but particularly, we need to invest in Africa and fight the AIDS pandemic there. And Condoleezza Rice was very persuasive. And so when President Bush became president, he then took as one of his chief concerns in foreign policy to fight HIV AIDS in Africa. And history would tell us that about 10 million men, women, and children have been saved because of the billions of dollars in investment and research there in that continent. There are these moments that seem almost mundane, that seem normal, and which there's sort of an eerie silence that kind of ripples out in society, a a time where leaders rise to the occasion or are broken by the moment. That's Acts 15, you guys. Acts 15 is that moment in the church where, where if they get this wrong, the church will crumble. It's why Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said this is, talking about the issue that we're going to talk about today, this is the article in which the church rises or falls. A question came to the church, and in many ways, if they got this wrong, we wouldn't be gathering here today. Now, I'm going to read all of these 35 verses, okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it, and then I'm going to kind of talk about the terrain of the text, and then we're going to dive into 
uh, the text. But before we do this, you can just put on the big idea of this text, which is that unity in the church comes from a right gospel doctrine and a right gospel culture. We're going to look at those two things. The gospel in its doctrinal form, and then secondarily, the gospel in its cultural form, how the gospel actually creates a culture and the importance of that for the unity of the church. So, turn with me to Acts 15, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about their question. So being sent up their way to the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done throughout them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has, which is Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his name. And with this words of the prophets, They agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For... From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church and to to choose for them men among them to send to them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent um, Judas called Baraspas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicily, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed too good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our brothers Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, therefore, sent... 
uh, Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by the word of the mouth. For it is, seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So they went away and sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened their brothers with many words. And after they sent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord with many others. Okay just to kind of get a lay of the biblical ground, this text is really, and this story, is really kind of divided. It's sort of like law and order, all right? I don't know if you notice this, but it's a, it's a law, it's a courtroom scene, right? So, so we have a, a case that's going to be debated. We then have four witnesses that are called. So we have the witness of the Pharisees. We have the witness of Peter. We then have testimony from Paul and Barnabas. And then finally, we've got the last sort of witness testimony, which is the Old Testament prophets. We then have the judge who is in, we see this in verse 15. Uh, James is the, the, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the judge. And so he sits on judgment of this ruling, having kind of weighed the evidence. And he makes his ruling there in verse 19. And then we have sort of the, the ruling kind of being disseminated to the lower courts, right? It goes out to the surrounding areas by way of letter. And then the church in Antioch and Syria are told that this is the ruling of the Council of Jerusalem. So let's kind of go through this. First, let's look at this case that's debated. We see it in verse 1 and then again in verse 5, don't we? Verse 1 there are these teachers, we, we learn in verse 4, that they're Pharisees, and they say that you must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, otherwise you cannot be saved. And then if you go down to verse 5, it says basically in the same way, it is necessary to be circumcised, to circumcise them, right, the Gentiles, and order them to keep the law of Moses. So what's going on here? Well, it's pretty clear, right? Back in the Old Testament, all of God's people were circumcised. We see that starting in Abraham, right? Circumcision was a sign that you were a part of the covenant community. It was a sign that you were God's people. You couldn't be God's people without the outward sign of circumcision. And so when you just think about it, this makes perfect sense. You have the gospel going forth. You have Gentiles who say, we want to worship Jesus. We want to worship God. We believe what you believe. And so to the Jewish church, it makes perfect sense that, well, they need to be circumcised. They need the outward sign that explains that they are part of God's covenantal people. And yet, the thing that they don't understand fully is that circumcision was, it was about an outward sign that you were a part of God's covenantal people but, but circumcision was more than that. You see, what circumcision was is circumcision also differentiate between what was clean and what was unclean. 
We see in the book of Isaiah that the prophet Isaiah talks about Gentiles and he talks about that they are unclean and he also kind of uses as synonyms unclean and uncircumcised. Or one might think of um, David right before Goliath, right? That uncircumcised, that, that heathen, that unclean man. So, so circumcision wasn't just a sign that you were part of God's covenantal community. It was also a sign that you were clean. That God made you clean. And so they're basically saying, well, well, this makes perfect sense. Gentiles, you need to be circumcised in order to, well, be a part of our community. So at the heart of this debate, it wasn't merely a question of how is one saved. It was that. And we'll get to that. But then it was secondarily, how, do, how does the Jewish church and the Gentile church come together as one? And would the Gentiles need to be circumcised before they were full citizens in the church, the universal church? That was the question. And so Pharisees, they're going out, making perfect sense to them. All right, Gentiles, you need to be circumcised, and then you can be a part of the church. And then we see in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas, they're ticked off, right? They have no small dissension, right? which is Greek for they were hot, right? This is a heated conversation. I mean, you can see how heated it is in Genesis 2, or I'm sorry, in Galatians 2, right? Like, Paul is like, no. No, 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 no. And so they, they get sent down to Jerusalem to debate this. And they arrive in verse 4. And then in verse 5, we have our first witness called, right? And this is the Pharisees, and they say, well, it's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and order them to keep the law of Moses. That's the first witness that's called. The second witness is Peter in verse 6. And Peter stands up and he basically, starting in verse 7 down through verse 8, he basically says, look, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles I was there when it came to the Gentiles with Cornelius, and we know it did because of the witness of the Holy Spirit that fell upon them. And so, if the Holy Spirit, if God himself, doesn't make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, why are we? And then in verse 9 he says, look, there's no distinction between them and us because they have been cleansed by their hearts, by faith. And then he says, verse 10, now, now therefore, why are we putting God to the test and placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that, they're, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Basically, he's saying, look, if you go to the Old Testament and you look at the law, we didn't do a very good job of obeying the law. If you could, have, if you could be saved as a result of obeying the law, we didn't do that. We failed that test. In some ways, I think there's a misnomer that says, that the New Testament, you are saved by grace, but in the Old Testament, they are saved by obeying the law. And what Peter's saying is, no, 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 that's never been the case. Just think of Abraham. Abraham is a pagan, right? And he's called out, he's an idolater, he's called out, into a covenantal relationship with God. And how is he saved? Well, it tells us 
that he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. His righteousness, his right standing before God was connected to his right belief in God. It, it wasn't that he did certain things. He had a sort of behavior modification. He believed God and he was declared righteous. And so that's Peter's testimony. He's saying, look, we, we've got to write what, what the function of the Old Testament law and the function of it for us even today is that it declares the, the, the goodness, the majesty, the holiness of God. And it also points out our need for a savior. It, it points out our sin, right? But by declaring the, the height of God's law, it, it kind of exposes the depth of our sin and it exposes the great gulf between God and us, pointing us time and time again, Old and New Testament, to our need for a Savior. Which is why Peter says, verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter's like, this is the gospel. The gospel is all about grace. You've seen those restaurants that say, no shoes, no service? Peter's saying, that's how you're thinking about religion, right? No circumcision, no service. No, no, no. There's no, when it comes to grace, there is no qualifier. Have you ever had those conversations with people? When they talk about grace, but then they qualify grace, they're like, yes, we believe in grace, but you have to do. And they start listing off all the different things in which you have to do. Well, grace, by its very definition, has no qualifiers. It is the unmerited favor of God. God saying, I will have a relationship with you regardless of what you've done. It is my work and my work Alone. Well, it's no wonder, verse 12, that everyone kind of fell silent at this. I mean, grace does this. If you've ever experienced grace, you just royally screwed up and someone just showered you with grace, undeserved favor. They should have, you know, demanded vengeance or demanded something and instead they just forgave you. If you've ever experienced that, you know it just creates this eerie silence. It's so countercultural. We all kind of live in this moralistic universe in which we think, no, no, you know, if I do this, I deserve that. An eye for an eye. And yet when someone demands no eye, when you took their eye, metaphorically, it's hard. It's jarring. And so it causes Silence, it, silence just falls on them. And then we have Barnabas and Paul, and they give their testimony. They give their witness. They're the third kind of witness called to the stand. And they relate all the signs and wonders that God had done through them with the Gentiles when they went on this first missionary journey. And then afterward, verse 13, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he, he says, brothers, listen, verse 13. And then he says, we need to listen to, to, to what Peter was saying, that, that, that the gospel really did go to the Gentiles. And we also need to listen to the fourth and last witness called to the stand, which is the stand of the prophets. 
And in verse 16, we have a quote of the prophet Amos. And in verse 17, we have an allusion to the prophet Isaiah. And in verse 16, it says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will build its ruins, and I will restore it. Now, what's going on here? Well, I take it what he's saying is, look, Israel, right, it's, it's going into exile. It's being destroyed. But God's going to come back, and he's going to restore Israel. And he's done that in the true Israel, Jesus Christ who rebuilt the tent of David, being the true son of David. And he rebuilds it by dying on a cross and rising from the grave. And that gospel truth, it goes forth. It's not just for Israel, ethnic Israel, but then it goes forth, verse 17, to all of mankind, to the nations, to the Gentiles. The Lord who makes these things known from of old. Meaning, this has always been God's plan. God's plan has always been to bring the gospel to the nations through Israel. And particularly through the true incarnation of Israel. The the, the only Israelite who fully obeyed God, Jesus Christ. And so as a result of that... James says, verse 19, here's the verdict. The judgment is that you should not trouble yourselves with circumcising the Gentiles. They don't need to be circumcised. Why? Because circumcision is no longer entrance into the, to, into the covenantal community. Circumcision had its role, but it was just provisional. It was pointing to something, or maybe better put, it was pointing to someone, which was Jesus Christ himself. The Old Testament talks about this, and then Paul talks about it in the New Testament, which is that there will come a day when you wouldn't just be circumcised outwardly, but you would have a circumcision of the heart. That's what I think Peter's talking about in verse, um, verse 9 when he's talking about this, the hearts being cleansed. That someday the Spirit would fall, and that you would be called into God's covenantal community, not through an outward experience of circumcision, but from an inward experience of the circumcision of the heart. And how do you get it? How is it that you can enter God's community and know that you're saved? Well, well, it's really simple. It's through faith. You see, we put all of these sorts of qualifiers before the gospel. You need to do this, you need to not do this before you can believe. And yet, no, 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 there is no verb that you can put before the gospel except for repent and believe. Those are the only verbs. You just have to believe it. You have to turn to Jesus. Believe that he really is who he says he is, did what he said he did, accomplished what he said he accomplished, rose from the grave. If you believe in that and turn to him in faith, you don't need to be circumcised. Because at that moment, you have a circumcision far greater than an outward circumcision. You've got an inward circumcision, a new heart with new desires to follow God. You see, I I think one of the things we can, by way of application, note here is that 
every generation has those threats to the gospel, right? Those, those worries we have in our culture, right? I'm guessing if I put a whiteboard out and we said, well, what do you think the threats of the gospel are right now? We could make a list one after the other. And I think what we learn here is that the greatest threat, which has always been the greatest threat against the gospel, the threat against Christianity, is an internal threat. It's the threat of legalism. Legalism comes in various forms, but legalism says that you have to do certain things in order to be saved. You have to have certain behaviors. You have to, dis- you have to not have disobeyed in this area or that way. You have to clean yourself up, and then you can be saved. And it can take many, many forms. Because we can kind of be intellectual and say, oh, I could get the, the answer right about the gospel on paper, but we can be functional legalists in our hearts. Or let me put it this way. We can believe that we are called by God, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We could articulate the five solas of the Reformation and believe in a true and pure and without entanglement gospel. And yet, subtly, as we go throughout our life in the Christian faith, believe that we are saved by grace but kept by works. It could take many forms. You know that when you sin and you feel guilt and shame and then you think, I have to now clean myself up before God. Instead of running to God and finding refuge in his grace and his love, we think, no, I have to pay back God. If you ever think that way, well, it's because you've misunderstood how the gospel applies to our lives. The greatest threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest threat to Christianity, starting here at the early church in Acts 15, going all throughout church history, always is a misunderstanding of the purity of the gospel and throwing entanglements Onto the gospel. One of the biggest religious surveys ever done was done about 20 years ago by Christian Smith, who got a, a Lilly Foundation Award, which is a big deal. And he, he studied youth, evangelical youth, and asked them various questions as it relates to what they believed, you know, a Christian worldview. Just sat them down, tell me about the gospel. What is a Christian worldview? What do you believe about God and sin and mankind? Thousands upon thousands of interviews conducted over years. And his research is in a book called uh, Soul Searching. And he found, and these are youth in evangelical churches that teach the Bible, preach the gospel. He found that really the functional religion of youth in America was what he coined as moralistic therapeutic deism. The functional kind of worldview of youth in evangelical churches, is simply that God wants us to be moral people, good little boys, good little girls, therapeutic. God is just really concerned with my happiness. He really wants me to be happy. And deism, meaning that God doesn't really interact with me, right? This is a closed system. God's not involved in this world in any kind of personal way. We could talk about the gospel. We could preach the gospel. 
And yet we can sometimes in our parenting, I know I have, in our marriages, I know I have, in our work, I know I have, taught or behaved in such a way that we communicate that as it relates to Christianity, it's all about behavior modification. It's all about doing the right things and staying away from the wrong things. And so we can subtly sabotage the very gospel that we think that we're preaching and instead throw in the gospel all these entanglements. But you see, the gospel does not come by way of jumping through any hoops. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing you have done that can merit you out of the kingdom. There is nothing that you have done that can merit you in the kingdom. It is all by grace through faith in Jesus. That's the gospel that comes. That's the gospel that James sits and says, yes, this is what the gospel is all about. This is the article in which the church will stand that says our justification, our being justified by God, our being in a right relationship with God isn't based on ourselves. It's based on God's work in sending his son to take our place. Well, that's the right doctrine, right? This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we want to sing the gospel. This is why we want to teach the gospel. This is why we want to bang that drum over and over and over again because this is the article in which our church and every church rises or falls. We must get this right. And I think it's a fight that all of us must face every day. I I talked to a, a family, some parents in Oregon a long time ago, and all their kids were just really doing great. And I just thought, well, tell me, give, give me some advice on parenting. Like, well, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? Right? As a parent, I love hearing stories about how parents did things wrong, right? It's encouraging. You know what I mean? And so I was asking, like, give me some advice. You know, they're in their 60s. And he, they said, the, the one thing we got right is, early on in parenting, we realized, as it re- relates to our, the, the Christian formation of our children, we Realized we will fight one battle and we would have, and we'd fight it with everything we had. They said we were going to fight legalism. We were going to communicate every time and point them to Jesus and say, You don't have to jump through all these hoops to have a relationship with Jesus. You just believe. I think that's right. We can't have a no shirt, no service church. That's what the Pharisees wanted to do. Instead, we need to offer the gospel to everyone without entailments. And let me just tell you, it feels uncomfortable. It almost feels like I'm going to get burned in doing it. It's like giving your car keys to a 16-year-old. You know you have to, but it seems risky because you don't know what you're going to get. But that is the gospel. That's the doctrine we must get right. But then secondly... I just want to look at the gospel culture that takes place. So a church that really believes in that gospel, that the gospel is all about the grace of God, it creates a culture, right? Now, what do I mean by culture? Well, well, just think about it. You know, you you can work out at the YMCA just fine. It's not really a culture. You just go, you work out, and you leave. But if you do CrossFit, that's a culture, right? might be a cult, right? 
Or, or think about it. You, you can go to Safeway, get your groceries, great. But, but if you go to Trader Joe's, that's a culture, right? right? You go there for a reason. Or, you know, you, you can just get any scooter. I've always wanted a scooter, okay? Always wanted a scooter. But I don't want just any scooter. I want a Vespa, right? Because when you get a Vespa, it's not just about the scooter. It's about everything, right? I want to I take a scooter from my house down to a coffee shop and get a little espresso, right? And just, you know, read, a, read poetry and be weirdo, right? I just want to imbibe that culture, right? That European weirdness. Sorry. <laughs> Wasn't in my notes. Right, so the, there are things, right, that, that, that we know that if we're a part of, it, it creates this culture. Well, well, a church that preaches the gospel, that offers the gospel, and, have, and people start believing the gospel and applying the gospel, it creates a culture. And I just want to point out a few of this. All right, if you notice this um, in chapter 15, right, Paul and Barnabas, they, they have this discussion, there's this debate, and then all of a sudden they come down and they debate it, right? They have a conversation, it would have been so much easier if they just said, okay, this is going to be complicated. We've got the Jewish church and the Gentile church. Why don't we just have the, the first Baptist church of the circumcised and the first Baptist church of the non-circumcised, right? And we'll just put them across the street and, you know, it'll be easier, right? Some of us, some of you were, were raised in families in which any sort of difficult conversation was just kind of swept under the rug, uh, under the rug assuming that that's how we bring that's how we have unity, right? Unity comes from not having difficult conversations, not having hard conversations. We don't see that here, do we, right? Unity doesn't come from not having hard conversations. Actually, it comes from having hard conversations, hearing testimonies, weighing it by reason and experience and primarily and foundationally and authoritatively Weighing it by God's word, right? It's having that hard conversation to say, I don't know what I think about this, but but let's get some Christians together with our Bibles open on our knees and say, okay, I want to hear from you. I want to listen to you because maybe you're seeing something that I'm not seeing. I think that's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of church I want to pastor where we can have hard conversations, step on each other's toes. Why? Because it's safe. Because this is a community of grace where we can accidentally say the wrong thing and we don't jump on each other, but instead we can say, hey, we're, we're all learning. We're, we're all growing. We're, we're all trying to weigh our opinions and thoughts about this world and sift them through God's word. So I'd encourage you, have those hard conversations. right? Have those hard conversations and weigh them by God's word. Listen to one another we all have those like flash words, right? Those words that if someone says it, we just jump to conclusions. Don't, just don't jump to that conclusion. Jump to the conclusion that they're your brother or sister and they're wrestling with this too. And we can learn from one another and sharpen one another. That's what a community of grace does, right? It's safe to talk about hard things. A community of works or a community that isn't saturated with grace is a place where it's not safe to talk about hard things or to maybe talk about your sin and say, I need help or, or to say, hey, I'm really struggling in this area. The community of grace has hard conversations. 
But then second, and, and this is the oddity of this text, go there to verse 19, right? In verse 19, James gives his judgment, right? And then in verse right, 22, right, that this judgment is going to go out to the other churches with a letter being sent and, and Paul and Barnabas go out with two other um, brothers. But something really weird happens. And, and I, I was reading it and I remember going, what in the world is this? This, this looks like a contradiction. This looks like the very message of the apostle and the ruling is like cutting the legs underneath them. Because it says, look, therefore my judgment is that we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who turn to you, verse 20, but should write to them to, and then there's four things, right? Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, that just seems really weird, right? It's saying, okay, they don't need to be circumcised, but they do need to not eat that rare filet mignon. Just make any, you're like, well, right? The whole point was that we're not going to have any entailments and attachments to the Gospels, any like hoops to jump through, and then here are four hoops. What in the world is going on here? Well, like I said, the, the question wasn't just, how can I be saved? There was another question, which is, how can Jew and Gentile worship in the same church? And so you have Jewish people who have a very, very sensitive conscience, about various things, right? They were raised, their, 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 their life, their history, their education just brought them to the conclusion that they could not eat, let's say, food that was in any way attached to a sacrificial system or any type of pagan thing, right? Paul is going to talk about this in 1 Corinthians. And so they're like, I, I can't have, I can't go to the, to the potluck and see my Gentile brother and sister eating pork or whatever. And so you have this combination of kind of moral things to stay away from, right? Sexual immorality, idolatry, but then you have these sort of pastoral considerations, things strangled and also from blood. Now, I think it's actually really simple. I think what, what's going on here, this is a pastoral concern that James has, which is, okay, okay, Jewish brothers and sisters, you're making this really difficult on the Gentiles, and then Gentiles, hey, you're making this really difficult on the Jews. The point is we want to stay in one church together. When um, I planted a church with a friend in my mid-20s, and, and in your mid-20s, you just shouldn't plant a church because you're an idiot. And so we planted a church, and on our first service, right, 25, you know, I, I'm cool, I'm wearing my skinny jeans, and, and I'm in a college town, and so we had... Communion um, table set up. I just didn't even think anything out. You know, you got the little communion things, and we had, we had juice, and we had wine communion tables. Just didn't think about it at all. And then right after the service, we had multiple people come up to me and say, you can't do this anymore. It just is wounding my conscience. I just cannot worship God because there's wine here. They told us their story. It didn't even dawn on me. But it was really simple, the answer to this, right? This, the answer was like, juice for everyone, right? That's what's going on here, right? Something similar to that. Or um, this wouldn't happen in Puyallup, but it definitely happened in Corvallis, where I was pastoring. But we had our church potluck. And there was a minority of people who were vegetarians. And they're the type of vegetarians that if they saw you kind of eating meat, they had like that little inward gag. Because for them, it wasn't just that tastes bad, but it was a moral thing. Like, how could someone eat meat when it's, right? And And they go off on their soapbox, right? Now, I'm not here to debate that. My point is, we have the church potluck, and we think, 
this is a really simple solution. We can go without. We can just eat vegetable soup. Which might not be fun for some, but it's a way in which we can love our brothers and sisters. That's what's going on here. Okay, the point is, in in this, is that all Christians, when you come to the church, and this is true then and it's true now, all Christians, you got to give something up when you come to the church. We we get this wrong all the time. We think, okay, no, when I come, I'm going to have it my way. The church is not McDonald's. Or maybe that's Burger King. Whatever, have it your way. Burger King. No, 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 that's not the church. The church is, actually, you have to give something because it's like a marriage, right? When, you, when, you, when you're married, you have to give things up. The same is true of the church. As we gather here, we give things up. And I think that is particularly difficult for Americans. Uh, there's a famous social psychologist. He's long dead, but he created this um, cultural um, test. And uh, what he was trying to do is to show how different cultures interact in different ways on this six-point scale, all right? And some of them were like power distance, right? So like there are cultures that are low power distance and high power distance, and there's all these sorts of scales. There's six of them. But one of them is uh, individualism versus collective societies, right? We, we know what this means, right? There's societies that kind of revolve more collectively, right? We share, and you look, you think, and you interact more communal. And then there's some societies that are much more individualistic, right? Americans, we we love to be first. We are number one on the individualist scale, 91% individualistic, okay? Now, this is not a, there's there's good and bad to all this. There's, you know, the higher you are in an individualistic scale, the the more entrepreneur, right? There's lots of like positive things that come out of this. But the point is, that the higher you are on that scale, the harder it is to see and to say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice for the greater good. Because we see our lives in light of, no, I have my rights. This is what I want to do. And I don't want to sacrifice. We think in those terms. And if you don't think that we just all swam in this, that, that's, that's, the, that's the point about culture, right? We've, you just swim in it and you don't think anything like it, and then you spend time in, in a more collectivist culture and you realize that is very, very different. They think differently than we think. Well, I think that's why this is so hard for us. It's hard to say, yeah, I have to give up my preference. Oh, I like these kind of songs, this kind of music. Oh, but I have to give it up sometimes because other people in the church like these kinds of songs and this kind of music. That's a sacrifice, isn't it? I think some people give up even more than others. But I think the point of this recommendation from James is that you got to give up something. And the point is that you're bound by love to think, I want to have communion with and fellowship with my brothers and sisters. And so if there is a way and something in which I am doing that is impeding that, then for the sake of them, for the sake of love, for the sake of fellowship with them, I'll just go without That's what the gospel does, right? That's what grace does. Grace says, I've been saved by grace, and so I can give other people grace. I've been saved by Jesus, who's done everything for me, so I can give. That's the power of a grace community. It's a power of people, men and women, families, saying, I'm going to give something up. My money, my time, my house. 
Oh, I've been so encouraged when I see and I hear those testimonies in this church because it very much is in line with this. And I'll just point out, if this just seems like boring, I just want to point out one last thing, which is, did you notice when the letter comes out to the Gentiles, did you notice their their attitude? Did you notice what they experienced, how it describes their behavior? Verse 31, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced, right? They rejoiced. It's like, okay, you can't eat that rare steak. And they're like, who cares? We get God. We get Jesus. We get full access to the community. Who cares? We will gladly go without that we get to actually worship Jesus with our Jewish brothers and sisters. They were joyful. They were encouraged. That's what a grace community looks like. It's one filled with joy. Not joy because everything goes well. We know that in the book of Acts, right? Things do not go well. There are suffering around every corner, around every chapter. There is suffering, hardships, trials, right? The last 14, you know, Peter and James are encouraging the church, strengthening the church by the message that through many trials and tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Yes. Suffering exists, evil exists, but there can be joy that is had even in the midst of that because grace cannot be ripped away from you. Grace experienced is grace that will sustain you to the end. Well, there there are those moments in time, and we had it right here. Acts chapter 15, a moment in which the church stood up and said, The gospel will be without entanglements. You don't need to be circumcised. And they also stood up and said, and we are not going to split the church between Jew and Gentile. We're going to come together and we're going to do everything in our power to bring people who are dissimilar, people who were brought up to hate each other, people who were brought up that were so different that to see them all together would be shocking. And he said, we are going to do everything to bring the unity of the church together, and we're going to do it through the preaching of the gospel. That's the same message for us. If we want unity amidst our diversity, it comes because of a doctrine of the gospel, and it also comes as we live out that doctrine in our own lives and create a culture of grace that brings in people from all different preferences, all different ethnicities, all different backgrounds and education, and says, you are welcome here. Let's pray. God, we, we, we are grateful for your, your grace and mercy that we do not deserve. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would grow and mature us in an understanding and deepening our trust and faith in your son, Jesus Christ, that, that we wouldn't just believe the gospel, but having believed it, we would apply the gospel to our lives. May it just... Uh, Um, May we create a culture of grace in this church, we pray. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.